Hello and welcome to the Mastermind Body and Spirit Show. I'm your host, Matt Belair. Today's guest is an award-winning science writer of three best-selling books, The Genie in Your Genes, Mind to Matter, and his newest book, Bliss Brain, The Neuroscience of Remodeling Your Brain for Resilience, Creativity, and Joy. Welcome back to the show, Dawson Church. Matt, I am so delighted to be here again. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you. I said, Dr. Dawson Church, my apologies. I should have thrown that in there. Um, I love your first book. Well, all your books are amazing. Your, your work is incredible. We were having a little discussion before the show about um, the study you did on EFT and coronavirus, which is interesting. Um, I can't go live on Facebook right now because I just got kicked off yesterday. I was kind of telling you. Um, so, uh, yeah, why don't we just start a little bit about this new book? And if you want to go into... Um, you know, those studies were really interesting because the point of this show was to find ways that we can like heal ourselves, uh, cure ourselves, improve the quality of our life. And um, you're one of the people who's actually put some of the science to that saying, hey, yes, mind does influence to a great degree our reality. And so how do we acquire that knowledge so we can live lives of more uh, joy and bliss and health and vibrance? And so I'd love for you to just kind of, yeah, chime in. You know, let's just dive off the deep end. None of the shallow ends. Let's just yes. get on the high wire, the high <laughs> diving board, and, and go go to the deep end. So Perfect. one of the problems I'm facing right now, Matt, in my work and in my books and in my research is that it is very hard to describe to people and convince people and portray for people just how happy you can get. So the book isn't called Happy Brain or, you know, kind of okay brain or feeling more or less okay or bumping along through life brain. It's this brain. And when I was 15 years old, I was a really miserable kid. I had PTSD from a rotten childhood and I was depressed. I was anxious. And I, 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 I had this moment when I was, I, was, I was 15 years old. I was in a hotel and I walked down the hallway and there was a full length mirror there. So I paused and looked at my own reflection in this full-length mirror, 15 years old. I had hair down to my chest. I had this long, long curly hair. I had a, a bag of books over my shoulder, bell-bottom trousers on, stare at myself, and I had this thought flash into my mind. That is the saddest face I've ever seen. I looked at my own face, and I was appalled at how tragically miserable I was. And so I thought, i got to fix myself. So I went, and I joined an intentional community, a spiritual community, learn to meditate, learn the world's great religious traditions, all the great perennial philosophies behind every religion, learn spiritual healing, all of these things, and got, I mean, maybe 1% happier. Didn't, didn't really work all that well. And so I just came at it from a miserable perspective. And I read the stories of St. Francis of Assisi, like this one image in, in this brain of St. Francis of Assisi, he is pretty much passed out in ecstasy. He's had such a, an absolutely revelatory high in his spiritual path, in, in contemplation of the divine. In, the Franciscans call it, call it unio mystica. Uh, Franciscan nuns, for example, they have this unio mystica, mystical union with the divine. I read the stories of Ramakrishna, this Indian saint in the late 1800s, and he would literally freeze in samadhi. He'd be walking down the street and he'd just freeze just go off into absolute divine bliss. And then he would re-emerge re a few days later. Uh, re reading the poetry of Hafiz and 
and, and Rumi and all of these great Sufi saints, or St. Catherine of Siena, St. Teresa of Avila, all these people, they don't just talk about having a pleasant time in those realms. They talk about absolute ecstasy. And here I was, 15 years old, reading about this stuff and thinking, no way. And so one of the problems we have now in science is that uh, teams of researchers have now looked at the brains of today's St. Francis's and St. Teresa's and Rumi's. And these are monks and nuns, Franciscan nuns in convents here and here and now in the, in the, in the 2000s. And these, these nuns have spent 20, 30 years in contemplative prayer. The Tibetan monks have spent 10,000 hours, some of them over 60,000 hours in their lives doing meditation. And then we put them in an MRI or hook them up to an EEG and we study their brains and match. It's like studying the brain of Rumi or St. Francis. And we're finding that they are in extraordinary brain states. So that picture in Bliss Brain of St. Francis passed out there, or, or Ramakrishna completely absorbed in samadhi, so his, his whole body freezes for days. That's real. And we now know we can track these brain states, but like the, the gap is that those ecstatic states, even though they're achievable by anyone now, they are so far beyond what the average person thinks of as happiness, that it's hard to even explain it to people. And one metric for that is, um, and I'll, I'll wrap it up with this, this one, one statistic from Brain. So they hook up these Tibetan monks, have them meditate, and they're measuring a wave in their brain called gamma. And gamma is your highest frequency brainwave, and it's the wave of integration, creativity, and joy. Happy people, people in flow states have lots and lots of gamma, sustained gamma. The average person has an occasional burst of gamma a few times during the day, almost no gamma. In fact, gamma wasn't even discovered until the 1960s. People didn't even know to look for it because we weren't believed to have the, the, those high brain frequencies. So we hook up these Tibetan monks to MRIs, have them go into meditation, and the amount of gamma they produce is 25 times that of an ordinary state of consciousness. They are 25 times as happy. And so trying to explain this to people, you, aren't, you don't do people say happy or twice as happy. You're going to get 25 times as happy. So these people, when we see them in ecstasy, they are truly in a state of mind, body, and brain that the average person can't even imagine. And then my job as a science writer is to try and convince people, hey, you can get there too. You just have to do certain things and you can get into the state of extreme bliss and you can learn to sustain that and make that your average, your ordinary, your everyday set. Holy smokes, that's amazing. Well, uh, you're, you're chopping up a little bit at the end there, but the audio came in uh, fine, so that's good as long as you can hear me. Um, I think that that's super exciting, and I think it was your first book. I was The Genie in Your Genes, and it's talking about epigenetic medicine and you know how you can essentially change and modify your health through your own consciousness, which is really important. And so with this, uh, with Bliss Brain, what do we need to do? And especially now with these times, like, 
these are really challenging times. A lot of people are losing their jobs. They're going through stress. Um, I think I'm the reason why I got off Facebook or, or kicked out anyway is because I was looking into World Economic Forum and some of the players that are creating systems that are not uh, life-affirming, as I think Walter Russell uses that term, life-affirming, like systems that help support people. And so when the challenge of, of being free and having opportunity to grow and say, oh, maybe I lost my job because of this. Maybe things are getting a little bit worse. Maybe some freedoms are going away and life is getting worse. And you're looking out there and say, oh, this is a little bit terrifying. Can we still get to these states? Um, and how do we apply in the face of, let's just say fear, because there's a great book by Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meeting, and he was in the concentration camps. And he talks about, you know, I'm sure it's possible, um, but I would also like that freedom too. And so when I have a family and I'm looking and I'm concerned with, all these things that I see that's documented that doesn't look life affirming. It looks the polar opposite. It looks terrifying. Um, how can I apply these techniques still, but be, be in the world, be aware of what's going on? Yeah. And there is a lot that is bothering people. Like I just heard from a friend of mine this week that she's moving. She just can't deal with California anymore. She's been affected by the fires, been affected now by terrible air quality, smoke. Uh, before that, she was affected by the pandemic. She was affected by the, the financial crash. She is just totally um, in complete fear around the election. So there are all these things that are there and they're stacking one on top of the other and they're driving people in distress. But some of the Tibetan monks that were looking at those MRIs of they were expelled from Tibet when the Chinese invaded in 1950, or some of them were tortured by the Chinese troops that moved into Tibet and abolished and destroyed many of the monasteries and nunneries there. So these aren't people who have had really happy lives. They weren't born in affluence and they ha haven't lived uh, a trouble-free life. They've often had a lot of stress and struggle and they're still super happy. And that, that's, that's really the lesson here is that all of those things are 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 challenges for us all. And that these people who are super happy didn't necessarily have super happy lives. They may have had really unhappy lives in some ways, and then they learned to achieve that this state. So all of these things are real. All of these um, threats to our well-being and our happiness are objectively true. There really is a pandemic, and there really is this you know, a lot of governmental dysfunction all over the world, and there really is a, an economic crash. All those things are, are really there. And so how do we remain happy in the face of all that. And that is the trait of resilience. So the subtitle of this brain is the neuroscience of remodeling your brain for resilience, creativity, and joy. And research shows that these monks actually rewire their brain dramatically not just a little bit. They're rewiring whole huge networks in their brain. And there's one network called the Enlightenment Network. And it's all lit up in these monks. They move into the Enlightenment Network. They're super happy. They have a lot of gamma. The brain regions that make us suffer shut down. So what Viktor Frankl talks about in Man's Search for Meaning isn't that you need external circumstances to be pleasing to be happy. You need to be happy and then if you're resilient, then you can deal with any kind of external circumstances. And the one I start off the book with, now I don't, don't talk a lot about myself in my other books, but this brain, I have two chapters, chapter one, chapter seven, where I talk about my experience. And it begins with an experience that was a shattering experience for me in my life, which was in October 2017, 
October 9th, I was wakened in the middle of the night by my wife. She was shaking me awake. She said, Dawson, something's really wrong. And I looked at the alarm clock next to my bed. It said 12.45. I looked out the window. There was a glow on the horizon. I walked out onto the deck and I saw this wildfire racing down the hillside toward our property. We had a huge property with, we had various buildings, we had an office building, we had our home, we had outbuildings. And I saw this thing coming and I just yelled, we're getting out of here right now. We ran through the house, threw on some clothes, grabbed the car keys, sprinted for the car. And as we drove away, my wife felt all this heat on her head and she looked up through the moonroof and all the tree branches were ablaze above her head. And we drove out through the surreal like landscape of cinders. The winds were gusting up to 70 miles an hour. They were blowing these big cinders like snowflakes, red glowing white snowflakes across our, our path. Our, our whole car wound up just peppered with these like little pop marks full of, full of these like burning embers as they swept across our path. And we drove like really fast for a couple of miles and eventually we, we knew we were safe. But um, we got uh, a text the next day from a friend of ours who'd gone back to the area. She took photographs and where the house had been, there was just a concrete slab, bunch of ash, pile of ash, everything melted, like the washing machine melted. You couldn't tell where the refrigerator had been. It had melted. All that was standing was the stone chimney. That was it. And then same thing with the office building, just a stone slab, just a, just a uh, concrete slab. That was it. The, the, the car wheels melted, the car glass melted, all, all the other stuff in, in, on the property melted. And so we were staring at this. And so two days after the fire, we were in a motel about 30 miles away. We were safe. And we've seen these photographs of our, our home, all our possessions, a lifetime worth of possessions gone. And so we looked at these photographs and we've obviously been feeling really disoriented for the previous couple of days. But I said to my wife, we need to do something and we need to do something right now. And that is we need to meditate. And we sat down and we meditated and we got into this deep state and we suddenly felt our souls coming back. It felt like myself, my soul dropped back into my body and suddenly I was there again. And we actually began to joke about the fire. I said to my wife, you know, think about those old photographs, boxes of old photographs of my mom's that have been sitting in the garage for 20 years that I'm supposed to sort through. Six boxes of these old photographs, blurry photographs from the 1950s. I don't care about them. And it's been on my to-do list to go through them for 20 years. And now they just burn up. I can cross that off my to-do list. We began, we began to think about all the things in our, our house we didn't really like that we could not have to worry about anymore. I, I texted our the manager who ran our business and only we'd show up in the office every day and she'd be there first and you know, let everyone in. I texted her. I said, Heather, We've had this goal of having a paperless office for the last five years. And guess what? There's no longer a single paper in the office. <laughs> so here you are, 48 hours, 72 hours after the fire. We were cracking jokes about it. Now, it wasn't all light and laughter. I mean, we were, we were definitely suffering from PTSD for the first you know, few, few days, weeks, and months after that. We needed treatment. We needed psychology. We needed spirituality. We needed meditation. But... 
that's what resilient people do. And so, yes, are there all of these shocks and problems out there? Absolutely. But resilient people, like those Tibetan monks who were tortured and made it through, like Viktor Frankl in Auschwitz in, uh, in World War II, like people who go through the fire, like people who go through the, the divorce or their mortgage being underwater or losing their job, if you have resilience, you can make it through life's challenges. And not only are you a survivor, you literally, and this is a phenomenon that is not nearly talked about enough, you, you actually have this phenomenon going on called post-traumatic growth, where you literally become happier and stabler and resilient, more resilient after all of those shocks than you were before. So that's really the message of this brain is that you don't need all the stuff out there to line up and look great for you. In the middle of chaos, in the middle of problems, when you're sick, when you're aging, when you're, when you're dying, when your life falls apart, if you are a resilient person, you have the inner energy, the inner courage, the inner resources, the feeling of knowing you are okay. And that is a powerful antidote to any of the traumas that of necessity are just going to afflict everyone's life. Holy smokes. Well, that's a, that's a wild story. It sounds frightening. I can imagine driving through, um, you know, fire. I've kind of seen some images from the ones out of Australia. It looks absolutely terrifying. And what you're describing sounds way easier said than done. It sounds terrible, um, but I feel like <laughs> I think so many people will will have some micro challenges, right? They can't handle like a small micro challenge, but but some people have big ones like that, losing your whole life, losing those memories, your house, all the memories. It just be be such a, a tough loss, like you know, actually just getting deleted from Facebook. I was like, oh man, I was like, that's a lot of work. I was like, that's a bummer. But it's all the contacts that I had from traveling the world and, and the memories. That's kind of what I'm grieving. And it was only yesterday. And I was like, oh, my goodness. Like, you just did that? That's crazy. Um, so I'm going through it. But but immediately, I'm trying to think about what's the positive here. And I was like, well, Facebook is kind of a crap hole right now. <laughs> I just like can't post anything without being polarized and um, all that kind of stuff. And then I'm looking at, well, what do I need to do now? And I can now maybe move to different platforms that are like more in-house that I control it all. I don't have anything outside. And if you want to come into my house and, and listen to what I have to say and what I have to share and communicate with me there, I don't need to rely on this thing outside because that could just burn down or they could take it away if we were going into the technocracy or whatever this is. Uh, so being adaptable, I, I see resilience is also adaptable and that's what humans are. That's what as a core root of our species, we're very adaptable. And, um, you know, one of the fundamental teachings I think that's, that I've seen from enlightened quote unquote enlightened people is they say like, we can't change what's happening. We can't change the external, but we can change how we respond to it. Right. That's where our power lies because you couldn't change that fire that happened, right? That just happened. And the only thing you can actually control in that situation is how you respond to it. You could say, my life is over. I'm going to stop writing books. And, and it doesn't make it any less hard. It's incredibly hard. Um, but that response is the conscious will. It's how you move forward, how you grow. And I love post-traumatic growth. I've never heard that before. So what I'd love to ask, and this is what I really like about your work, is you got the science behind it and you also provide techniques. And it makes me so just kind of annoyed when someone will give me a great story. And I'm like, tell me how. Right. And I don't, and then, yeah, the science, and I hear some studies that prove that this works. That's even better. So you have the, the trifecta of it. So I'm wondering if you can uh, speak about a couple of those. 
Yeah, and so in my book, Mind to Matter, which is all about how our brains are literally transceivers of universal energy fields, which we then create around us. Our brains are, what we think about in our minds is extremely powerful. And you, we, you know, we've heard the idea that our thoughts create our reality. Uh, the Buddha said 2,000 years ago, with our thoughts we create the world. In the Psalms, it says in the Bible, the, the Jewish Bible, it says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. So Martin Luther King said that, and Gandhi said that, and, and Ralph Waldo Emerson said that. And so we have all these great sages telling us that. So, so in, in Mind to Matter, I, 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 I talk about how our minds create, create reality. And if you want to create a better reality, create, create a bit, begin with a better mind. Begin with a higher consciousness. And there are 30 evidence-based techniques I talk about in Mind to Matter that you can use to do this with. And some of them are very simple, like grounding. Time in nature is really nurturing. There is studies, the studies now showing that time in nature literally produces epigenetic change in your genes, in your genome, when you go for a walk in the woods, when you stand with your feet, bare feet in a stream. It's amazing what it does. Just go to the nearest patch of grass. If you're in the middle of Manhattan, just take a walk to Central Park. In fact, there are hundreds of parks in, in, in most big cities. And if, if you have just a 10-foot square patch of grass, go stand there barefoot. Even that is, is helping you. But all those 30 techniques, I recommend you play around with them, pick the ones that work for your lifestyle, but then definitely do two. And there are two that I think of as the cornerstone of resilience. And those are, number one, effective meditation. And I say effective meditation because in Bliss Brain, I look at what is effective in meditation. And it turns out that it's not what people necessarily think it is. And people will tell you, well, you know, we have a school of meditation. My guru has the best meditation. And my religion has meditation figured out. And this is how we do it. And there are lots of different styles of meditation. In Bliss Brain, I cover seven different distinct schools, classes uh, meditation from walking movement meditations like qigong or buddhist walking meditation or yoga down to verbal meditations where you're chanting or you're repeating a mantra so there are ones that are verbal there are ones that are to do with movement there are ones to do with things like counting the breath and being mindful so there are a lot of different types of meditation and so what i looked at in this brain is which kinds of meditation produce the quickest neural plasticity which of them spark neural firing and neural wiring the best? And it turns out there are certain things that do it faster and better than others. So you want to have effective meditation. If you sit down and close your eyes and hope for the best, it's unlikely much will happen other than that you'll start to think about all the, the stuff you have to do in your life or your to-do list or your laundry. So just sitting down and closing your eyes is not likely to make it happen. You have to follow a scientific meditation protocol. So meditation is the one non-negotiable. I think people need at least, I mean, 10 minutes in the morning is all it takes to anchor you. Better 20 or 30 minutes in the morning. You don't need two hours. Now, I do take two hours some days if I just feel like indulging myself, but uh, you don't need two hours. You don't, you don't need 12 hours a day. In some of these meditation retreats in the Tibetan monasteries, they're meditating 14 hours a day. I really respect that, but that isn't within the reality picture of most of us Westerners. So just shoot for 20, 30 minutes a day and make sure you use an effective meditation. And I have 
guided meditations in this brain. You just click some links in the book and you'll get those for free and then use those. There are eight of them one for each chapter of bliss brain. So that's one thing to do. Meditation is essential. That's one technique. And it's, it's, um, it is well-researched. And then the second is EFT tapping. EFT acupuncture tapping is simply tapping on acupuncture points, and that produces rapid stress reduction. It takes one minute. And that's what you use when you get stressed during the day. So those are the two basic techniques I recommend everyone use. That sounds amazing. I just wanted to clarify the best form of meditation. If you could describe that in a nutshell, I definitely recommend people get your book just so they can go through the guided one as well. But um, can you can you share what that is simply to people, like the the easiest and most effective meditation technique? Yeah, and so there are two parts to that question, really. One is what's easiest, and the other is what's most effective. And so the easiest is things you do mechanically and physiologically. And so all of the meditations in this brain don't require you to still your mind, don't require you to believe in any higher power, don't require you to, to do anything with your consciousness, but they do require you to do things with your body. So what's really easy is to change your rhythm of breathing. So changing the breath is something you do, and I, I show you how to do that in the book. It's super easy and it's evidence-based. Another thing is to relax certain muscles. There are certain muscles we tend to have that are tight. If you relax those muscles, it's just a mechanical signal to your body to go into stress reduction and relaxation mode. So I've got several simple techniques like that that are part of this meditation, and they're physiological. Now, that, so that's, that's what makes meditation easy. Anyone can do this stuff. And there, there are stories in the book, like this one woman called Tony Tomlinson, who emailed into us and said, you know, I'm, I'm so stressed. I'm a single mom. I'm overwhelmed with parenting. I'm overwhelmed with life. I spend 99% of my, of my days in stress. I tried to meditate for the last year, tried this method, that method, nothing worked. When I sat down to do your method, Dawson, I thought, Tony, you're wasting your time. You'll never get where you want to be. And she said, when I just began to follow these seven simple instructions, suddenly I was in bliss. Tears of joy rolled down my cheeks, and I was there. And it's just that simple. You have to have to do these, these, these easy, simple physiological things, and you can get there easily. Now, what's effective is what I, the criteria I use in the book, and this is really hard research to, to unearth and explain. But my question was, of all the meditation techniques available, which ones produce the fastest rewiring of the happiness circuits of the brain. You want to really fire the happiness circuits and you want to quieten down the circuits to do with suffering. And that has, that's mainly the ones to do with what's called self-referential thought, thinking about me. Thinking about me does not make people happy. You're worried about your height, your weight, your longevity, your nutrition, your diet, your looks, your skin, your clothes, your money. That's just the realm of suffering. So what these monks do is they shut down the suffering part of the brain and they light up the compassionate and happy parts of the brain. So I asked what kinds of meditation do that quickest and then spark neural plasticity where the happy parts grow and the suffering parts shrink. And it turns out there are three things that produce the fastest neural plasticity. One of them is intensification. When I sit down to connect 
with non-local mind and high consciousness med med meditation, I feel the feeling in my body, and then I intensify that feeling. If I'm feeling a pressure or a kind of a movement in my heart and throat, I intensify that movement. So that's the one thing. Intensification definitely gets you there quicker. Another thing is meditating in groups, sitting in a circle, being in a either a virtual circle may have an effect. Certainly sitting in a real meditation circle has more of an effect than sitting by yourself. And the third thing is compassion. Research shows that Meditators who focus on compassion build those neural pathways of happiness quicker than those that have other kinds of meditation, like watching your thoughts, counting your breaths, and so on. So compassion is the third of those three keys to a really effective way of building those circuits fast. That's amazing. I, I definitely need to get the book and uh, try some of those meditations. And, and again, I know that you've done all the like the scientific studies to prove this stuff works. And, you know, when I went and learned about EFT uh, years ago, I was like, huh, this is super simple and it makes a lot of sense. And then um, flash forward a few years later, I was in China training with Shaolin monks and they had the energy body laid out their map of it. And it was extraordinary. I was like, I was like, I was like, can you guys fix anything on this? They're like, yeah. And I was like, what do you do with a cold? And they're like, stick a needle here. I was like, huh. I was like, what about this? And they would just tell you. And they're like, well, if it's, they would say, well, if it's this type, you're going to want to put here and here. And I was like, oh, my God. And this is like they just that was their science of the body. This was something that they has been passed down for generations and generations. And these people could do extraordinary things. They could they could break stone with two fingers for real. I had uh, you know Ben Askren on, who's a former MMA champion. And he's like, was that real? Because some people trick you. Right. They a lot of us want to know the power of the mind. I think David Blaine's actually a great example of that because he is actually doing those things. He does magic, but he also does uh, feats of what the body's capable of. Same with Wim Hof. And, and that's what uh, I've always been passionate about. And so I'm kind of going to throw a scenario at you to see how we may be able to apply this. You know, the world right now is a bit nuts. Um, I personally, I think my goal would be to live a joyous, fulfilled life that's of service, that helps other people, that's aligned with who I am and what I like to do. And it and it helps my community. It helps my fellow man. It helps all these different types of things. In my process of looking at life, I've noticed about a lot of terrible things. Some of them are human trafficking. Some of them is uh, fallen off of what's going up in China. And so I went up the scale of these organizational things and I see, ooh, this is like kind of terrifying. And and so now it's written out that there might be a, you know, a vaccine travel passport. There's a, there's a patent that you can put a chip in your arm and they could force vaccines on the whole population. And so now that I have a daughter, I'm like, oh, this is terrifying. And so if this weren't all happening, I would just focus on building my life, you know, the books and all the things I want to do to provide a positive impact. But also out of the corner of my eye now, I, I see kind of like a threat. And so how do I navigate that? Like, my, my thought has always been, if I'm not aware of human trafficking or, say, starvation, um, now I can't push the button and end starvation immediately, which would be fantastic if I could. But if I don't extend my compassion to know that 9.1 million people are starving to death or 400 million people might be in a human trafficking condition, how do, I, how do I create a solution for that? And so it's like this, this positive and negative, but sometimes it'll kind of get me down because it's so awful, right? You don't want that. And so if things are a little bit challenging or... 
you know, or from what I described there, what do you recommend for people to navigate life to like know that there's challenges, but also let's work together towards really empowering solutions? Because I don't see any reason why we can't live in what uh, you would would call Atlantis or like a peaceful world that made sense that had we lived on virtue. We we were cooperative. We had all our systems were that way too for the highest good, for the highest value based on ethics and integrity and values. And it looks like our systems are not that thing. And so how do we get there? And if it is something challenging, World War One, World War Two, some sort of suppression like Viktor Frankl, how do we navigate that but still focus on the thing we want to build? At the end of this brain, I take up that question and you look at the news and there are always things to be worried about there. And so I look at Google News usually once or twice a day, sometimes once or twice a week. And there are about 40 stories in Google News. Just turn on news.google.com, about 40 stories there. Sometimes look at the BBC. There are more there. There are like, there are like 70 stories on the BBC. And uh, so you look at them and, and they're, they're, they're disturbing. There are things like human trafficking, weaponized AI, species extinction, 27% of the birds in, in, the, uh, in the world have disappeared in the last 50 years. I mean, they're just really, I mean, there's all, all I talk about all of the stuff at Bliss Brain, at the end of Bliss Brain, in the very last chapter. So there are, there are all fires in the Amazon. I mean, there are, there's this endless parade of things. So 40 stories every day that will depress me about things I can do nothing about. I may make a donation to some good cause, but really I can do very little about any of those things. And there were, if I look back and go back to use a time machine, in fact, you can use Wayback Machine to go back to the internet anytime you like, and I go back a year. So I go back a year, then there was the impeachment going on back then, and then there was the, uh, all, all, the, all the trouble in Brazil going on back then. And there, was, you know, there were 40 things going on in my Google News feed back then. Go back another year, there were 40 things. Go back another year, go back 10 years, there were 40 things. Go back 20 years, there were 40 things in that same feed. And if I go forward, so when I go fast forward, there's will have been an election, or in a year, there'll be a vaccine, and then there'll still be 40 things wrong. So there are always 40 things in that news feed telling me that the world is a threatening a dangerous place. But they change. The, 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 they, they just serve you 40, 40 new things every day. And so you can't really affect that. You can't really change that. You can definitely change your awareness and change your consciousness. And you then are very a very, very different person in the outside world. So can you change all those things? No, you can't. Are they transitory? Yes, they are. And when you zoom out actually to the big picture, which I do in the very last chapter of the Spain, chapter eight, I look at hundred-year trends. I point out all the trends. So if you zoom into the daily news cycle or the weekly or monthly or even annual news cycle, there's always a lot to be worried about. But it's different stuff. And we forget we solved a bunch of stuff in the past. Those things are not on the menu anymore because we solved them five years ago, 10 years ago, and so on. So I, at the end of the book, I talk about all the ways in which life has been actually on an upward trajectory for human beings for the last few centuries. Democracy was unknown 500 years ago. Now, much of the world lives under a democracy, some of it flawed, but basically this thing that was unknown 500 years ago is now the norm in most of the world. Um, if you look at figures like infant mortality, just compare 1950 infant mortality figures with 2015 infant mortality figures, 
five million babies dying is terrible. But go back to 1950 and realize that we had, proportionate to our population, we had 10 times the number of babies dying. So when you read that story about five million babies dying, is that terrible? Absolutely. Not one baby should die. But you go back and you zoom out to the 100-year view. 100 years ago, our lifespans were one half what they are today. We're in the middle of a financial crash right now. But if you zoom out 100 years, you find that the average global citizen since 1980 the, the wealth of the average individual in the world has tripled, and that includes the crash of 1998, 1999, 2000, the dot-com bubble, and the recession of 2008, and today's recession. Even with all of those downticks, our global wealth per person has actually tripled. Our, our emissions of carbon have dropped by 50% on average since 1990. The Amazon burning is terrible that's going on right now, and yet deforestation of the Amazon is dramatically better than it was 20 years ago. So if you zoom out, you start to see all these signs of hope, including meditation. In 1980, there were roughly 1% of people in the US who meditated or had any kind of consistent spiritual practice. By 2004, it was 4%. It quadrupled in that 25-year period, just an amazing leap quadrupling between 19 between 2004 and 2017 it went from four percent to 17 percent the number of people interested in spiritual consciousness is rising dramatically worldwide the same figures similar figures are there for china for india for the european union for other places that collect those statistics everywhere interest in spirituality is exploding of in in in, in the world and this is leading us into a much more compassionate world. I wrote a blog post called The Pandemic of Compassion, because there is a pandemic of compassion going on as people take care of each other. People are making sure their elderly neighbors have food, have shelter, are protected, have masks. People are making sure that the kinds of practices that will help us thrive are being implemented. Uh, I, I have many examples in that in that blog post, Pandemic of Compassion. And I, I, I just list a whole bunch of things. In Iran, the country of Iran, all the houses of worship, the mosques, were shut down in March. And so suddenly there were all these empty mosques all over the, the country. And women began getting together in those empty buildings, and there were no face masks available at all. So they began hand-knitting face masks, giving them to their neighbors. The pandemic of compassion. In a Texas restaurant, a couple had a meal in March. And again, the big financial crash, a lot of restaurants going under. And they left a tip, a very generous tip, on their when they signed their, their, their credit card statement. Uh, so they, they signed for their meal, left a tip of $54,000 with a note below saying, we hope this make, helps you make it through these tough times. When you open your eyes and look around, people caring for each other, they even coined a name for it in Canada, care-mongering. They're not fear-mongering, they're care-mongering. So at the end of this brain, I zoom out to the 100-year view and the 500-year view, and we find that by measures of well-being like female literacy, like number of deaths, infant mortality, female mort uh, maternal mortality. I mean, there are literally hundreds and hundreds of studies. And if you plot that trajectory over the last 100 years, we are in an era of unprecedented thriving, despite 
all of the 40 problems that Google News serves me today, served me last year, will serve me next year, did serve me 10 years ago, those are always there. But there's this immense positive, positive narrative that is completely underreported, that is the real human story. And it's a mass change in consciousness. And that data point of 1% in 1980, 4% in 2004, 14% in 2017 shows that human consciousness is changing radically and we're in the middle, middle of this enormous tide of well-being. Wow, that's amazing. Well, I like putting it on a big scale and, uh, you know, plotting the trajectory. And I, and I like the idea, too, as well as um, the, the spiritual practices and the meditation. And a lot of time, too, if you look at an individual they sometimes will create a spiritual practice or an awakening, quote unquote, or change their lives or be more compassionate after they had a crisis. And this seems like a global crisis, an opportunity for all of us to reflect on what we do, how we operate, um, what kinds of people we are. Do we want to be part of the problem? Do we want to be part of the solution? Where can we help? So I love all those things. So what I'll ask is, is, is um, I always think about the idea of like creating versus surrender. And I read an interesting book that was recommended to me called Busting Loose from the Money Game. And it was one of the more spiritual books I've ever read, actually, which was odd. Um, and then I had uh, um, a guest on recently that talked about Ho'oponopono. And that's the two ideas in the book is number one is that we create our reality. Whether you think it's a hologram or whatever the case is, you create every single thing, the good, the bad, all this kind of stuff. Um, everything. You have to take full responsibility. Um, but it also talk about a little bit of like surrender. So my question is, let's say I'm existing here and I have a family and I want to provide for them. And I want to say, maybe I want to experience snowboarding or I want to um, get my daughter awesome music lessons because she's drumming like a maniac already. And so I want to provide these things and, and create, but also surrender to what is. And, and so with your book and what you've looked at for as far as your research, what can you share with people for how to navigate their life because many people just they go to their jobs but they're not quite happy with their jobs they'd like to modify the reality in some way and when i'm coaching i like to say i think that the the marriage for me is being content joyous and even blissful and i don't know how so i'm going to read your book um you know i, I can get grumpy sometimes i'm blissful <laughs> but uh if we could be content and joyous and grateful and at peace with wherever we are, with whoever we are, with whatever we know, with whatever is going on, even if it sucks, then that's the power. Because if it's outside of you, you're screwed because it'll always change, right? Whether it's the 40 images on Google or your bank account or whatever it is, they're going to be something that you need to change to be happy inside. So I got that. Um, but then we also want to create here because we're natural creators. And so that's kind of how I think about it and I'd be curious your take on how we can I can wake up and I can be blissful and joyous and also consciously create something that that I'm like yeah I want to get this thing because I, I want to do that you know whether it's a skateboard trick that I want to get or a snowboard trip I want to take my daughter on uh, how do we how do we do those things yeah and there are very two very different levels in which we create and most people are trying to create from the level of local mind so in my book, Mind to Matter, I begin the book with local mind and non-local mind and end the book in the same way. 
And so what was happening to St. Francis and St. Teresa and Ramakrishna and Rumi and all these great saints is they were surrendering to non-local mind. And it's an amazing experience when you do that. You are in bliss. You're just merging with the universe and all is perfect in the world. It's a remarkable state to be in. I actually took a mountain bike ride this morning after meditation and just riding my mountain bike and just being in such bliss. I literally was pedaling through the the, the valleys of Sonoma County, California, where I live, and I was literally weeping with joy, just overcome with love, just like not say anything, do anything, just completely, absolutely overwhelmed with, with bliss. So that is when you merge with non-local mind, and you're not living a life at the local level of local mind. When you have intentions, when you want to manifest, when you want to change stuff at the level of local mind, you'll say, I want to do this in my body, in my career, with my life. And so you're thinking about conditions perhaps that aren't perfect, ones you'd like to change, and you're, you're trying to make stuff happen at the level of, lo of local mind. These great adepts aren't doing that. They're manifesting all right. But what they're doing is they're first uniting with non-local mind. And so they meditate, they surrender. And I, the, my book is called Mind to Matter. It's definitely not called Mind Over Matter. I don't believe in Mind Over Matter. You can do Mind Over Matter. There are people who are, who are able to like manipulate material reality in various ways. But that's not the game. The game is surrendering to non-local mind. Then you surrender to non-local mind. And non-local mind gives you ideas, gives you insights, gives you visions, gives you wisdom. You have access to the wisdom of the, wisdom of the cosmos in that non-local mind state. You then download that into your local reality and what you want and what you ask for changes. And now it's in sync with what non-local mind, the highest good for all that non-local mind wants. And that kind of manifesting, you're then an instrument. You know, St. Francis wrote, Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. Um, they these great adepts talked about this surrender to the universe, and then you manifest and create the universe's highest good. And that looks very, very different from your small local mind's idea of the good. And it's also in sync with everyone else. In the last chapters of both Bliss Brain and Mind to Matter, I talk about the experiments with the Earth's geomagnetic field, which is heavily influenced by solar flares, which in turn are influenced by other things going on in our galaxy and in our universe. So there are these solar flares that shoot out from the sun's surface, and they can measure solar flare activity every month by month by month. In the whole, this whole field of geomagnetism, they can see what's going on with the Earth's solar flares. And those solar flares distort the Earth's electromagnetic field dramatically. And so the solar wind is rushing past the Earth at about 2 million miles an hour, very, very fast. It's actually producing shifts as it waxes and wanes in the in the shape of the Earth's field. Scientists can measure that. And then there are waves within those fluctuations. So at the end of the, both books, I have this, 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 this study showing that there are these waves that are measured of solar activity and the Earth shifts in electromagnetism in response. And again, these are, these are in, in response to even larger cosmic cycles going on. And then there is this beautiful graph of one person in an experiment and tracking their heart rate variability of a centered 
person, someone who's centered in themselves, who's centered in non-local mind. And that's overlaid on the shifts in solar activity for a month. And for 30 days, the two graphs track each other. When we are in sync with non-local mind, we're literally in sync with the cosmos. We're in sync with these massive cosmic cycles. And we're in sync with every other human being on the planet who's also in sync with them. This gives us the one of the most compelling yet scientific pieces of evidence for things like distant healing, telepathy, clairvoyance, all of these kinds of uh, distant phenomena might have to do with people's attunement to these cosmic cycles. There's a frequency in the earth called the Schumann resonance. It's the dominant resonance of the earth. It's seven and a half beats per second. And that's the dominant frequency of the planet itself. Healers, when we're in healing, that healing state, we're at the Schumann resonance. When you're doing dreaming during sleep, your brain is at about seven and a half cycles per second, same as the Schumann resonance. And when you're dreaming, there's a huge amount of learning going on in your hippocampus and other brain structures. So there's a way in which we can be in tune with non-local mind. And then suddenly we aren't trying to make stuff happen at the level of lo local mind. We don't even desire things at the level of local reality much. I mean, it'd be pleasant if, you know, this brain hits number one on the New York Times bestseller list. I certainly have that on my vision board. But, you know, I'm okay. I'm 100% happy regardless of where it is. So you surrender. You have these ideas. You have these visions. You have these preferences. But when you're attuned to non-local mind, infinite bliss and joy, really, you, at that point, you are living such an extraordinarily happy life that you're, you have equanimity. Things happen around you. Some things you want happen. Other things you want don't happen. Now, what ha tends to happen actually is that a lot of what you want does happen because another huge research study showed that meditators, people who are in this brain, they have far higher amounts of synchronicity, of reported instances of altered states of consciousness like clairvoyance and telepathy. Far more things just happen for them really smoothly. They're in flow most of the time. And so they have way better lives and much more effect mind to matter than people who are divorced from that and are stuck believing in the illusion and the complete lie that we are simply beings of matter stuck in local minds. We aren't. And if you live your life that way, you're living a tiny fraction of your, your potential. So that's the link between desire and surrender. Tune into the universe. What is the universe's highest want for you? What does the universe want for you? And feel the love the universe has for you. That's why you cry when you feel it all. That's why St. Francis was just passed out in bliss. That's why Ramakrishna disappeared into ecstasy. And you can do that too. Just disappear into ecstasy, and then you're in touch with the universe's highest intention for you. And it's infinitely better than your best intentions you can dream up from the level of local mind. So that's what you want to do. Go envision that from there. Go there to a non-local mind first, then move to the level of matter where you create effectively as a creator in the world. Oh, amazing. Wow. I love all that. Uh, 
what a beautiful answer. So I'm just going to throw another question at you because I know we're going to be running short on time. So you can answer what you wish. Um, and you can stay on all day if you want. I'll just sit here and listen to you. This is, this is fantastic for me. I'll just stay here and learn. Um, so uh, two questions. The one was, uh, you know, I love the idea of Lord, make me an instrument. I think it was like of your will or what is the universe's high intention for you? And so the question is, have you heard or can you think of like the highest level prayer? One of the ones that I've been saying lately as I, I try to discern these things is like the balance to giving it over because I know from going into those states, not all the time, I wish I lived in those states, that what I know is, is so tiny versus this infinite knowledge is just so far beyond what I can even possibly comprehend. Um, but I do know my intention matters. So recently I thought about the idea of say, um, dear spirit, may my thoughts, words, deeds, and actions be an embodiment of spirit. And I'm always trying to figure out the, the, the highest level prayer that I can give it over to the greater force and be in alignment with how I live and also the highest service. You know, hey, I'm here to show up. I'm, I'm down to do what you want me to do. And the cool thing is, um, it's always what you, who you are naturally. It's not the universe isn't going to make you go do something you hate to do. It's always your highest expression. It's naturally who you are. That's my, my belief in that. And so I want to ask you that question. And the second one, so you can kind of pick at it however long you want to speak on it is, you know, Dr. Joe Dispenza's work is, is very interesting. He's trying to measure this stuff too, where people are having these spontaneous healings. You've talked about this as well as how we can um, be very powerful healers in ourselves. And now we have this virus going around. People are very afraid. And my, I, I haven't been afraid of it because I believe in my own healing power. But because I've been studying people like you, uh, studying Dr. Joe Dispenza, looking at people like Wim Hof doing the impossible, but also at the same time, understanding my mortality. I, I am not in charge of any of this, right? I can intend a little bit, but I am going to die. And I'm I kind of at peace with that, knowing like that's going to happen. So I want to live my life fully and I don't want to live it in fear. And I want to be a, of high service, but I do trust my body and I do trust that infinite intelligence. And so uh, I've heard of so many stories of people having miraculous healing. We were talking a little bit about pharmaceuticals uh, before we started the show. And yeah, that could be one way, but but there's also many other ways and they're not as popular. And so I'm wondering if you could speak on maybe that study you said with EFT or, or the power an individual has to heal themselves and to have a healthy, vibrant body. Yeah. And we have so many options and modern medicine with its drugs and surgeries and various kinds of procedures is one option we have and can be really useful and helpful under certain circumstances. And then there are so many other things we can do as well. And I recommend in my books that people explore all of them, use all of them, use the ones that assemble them into a healing uh, team that will give you the best possible outcomes. So it's not either or, it's both and. And when you do that, I mean, you can have a, a fabulous life. I'll, and I'll give you one, one, one example in a moment. And then the first question about what prayer to have, what to pray for, what to hold as an intention. That's a really great, deep, profound question. And the chances are you'll be guided as to what it is. And when you enter these deep states, when you surrender to non-local mind, you're aware of this infinite, realm of possibilities. And so those prayers tend to come to you. And they come to you often in the form of words or thoughts or ideas or uh, concrete like holographic visions or perhaps music. I know for me often I, I'll, have, I'll just hear a little chant. So in Brain, I actually uh, a few times came back from meditation 
hearing a chant in my head, and then I uh, record, I hummed it to myself, and then had a professional musician record it for me, so it sounds good, and it's part of the bonuses you get on the when you buy the book. There are these links to these chants there as well. And what that is, is that's serotonin. And so uh, hallucinations are caused by large amounts of serotonin in the brain. You see things, you hear things, you, you see visions when you have lots of serotonin, because as I talk about in the Molecules of Bliss part of the book, is serotonin and psilocybin, magic mushrooms, have the same chemical structure. And essentially, when you take psilocybin, you're taking an external form of your brain's own serotonin, raising serotonin, and then having the hallucinations. But you have the hallucinations without, without psilocybin when you raise your serotonin levels high enough. And so you'll get a chant, you'll get a, a mantra, you'll get words there, you'll get uh, a felt sense of love there, and that prayer will come to you. So usually when you travel to those realms, you come back from those realms. And shamans talk about shamanic journeyings to those realms, then coming back, and you come back with a gift. You come back with a, an object that your guide has given you. You come back with a meaning, a memory of a visitation from, with a being that, that holds some key answer to a part of your life. So you do these visions, you do these, 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 these trips to non-local mind and come back with that perfect prayer. And it's unique to the person as to what, what they, what they'll get from that, that, that place. But I talk about those seven neurochemicals of ecstasy, serotonin, oxytocin, dopamine, beta endorphin, nitric oxide, and norepinephrine. And together they put you in this cocktail, this absolutely amazing cocktail of bliss hormones and neurotransmitters that when when we when we return like part of the meditation includes re-entering the world because after you do the meditations in bliss brain you come back and again psilocybin lsd heroin cocaine you've had you've generated all of those sem similar chemical reactions in your own brain and you're seriously stoned so you get back you have to then transition back into the world carrying your gift what that does as well is it produces healing in your body. In Mind to Matter, I talk about those, those Schumann resonances and those theta waves. Those theta waves you generate in meditation, they help generate the production of stem cells. They help repair DNA. They help myelinate, myelinate the sheaths in the learning and memory centers of your brain. They produce all kinds of beneficial gene change. So I, I list the studies that showing what those things do in, in that book. And it's amazing how much they, they, they can help you heal. And in one set of studies, I did, did two studies back to back, one of a weekend of eco-meditation, the method in the book, in the spring, the other of a week of EFT tapping. So meditation every morning, but then tapping away trauma all through the day, about eight hours of tapping every day, tapping away childhood trauma, current trauma, annoyances, life challenges. And when people's level of stress drops, all kinds of beneficial hormones and neurotransmitters increase. So their cortisol dropped 37% in the course of the week. And we were also studying immunoglobulins, which are these antibodies that attach to viruses and bacteria and immobilize them. You want to have a high level of immunoglobulins, and these antibodies are a measure of the health of your immune system. And so during that week of meditation and tapping, people's cortisol went down 37%. People's levels of antibodies rose by 113% in one week. Their immunity doubled in a week. 
by doing this. And that has effects on your health. So let's end with the story that I mentioned I'd share with you of my friend Beth Meisner, who was diagnosed with metastasized breast cancer. And she phoned me one day in great alarm. She had a genetic test showing that she had, she had eight defective genes that predisposed her for breast cancer. They just found a, a five centimeter, that's a huge sized tumor in her right breast. All of the lymph nodes under her right armpit were full of cancer and it began to metastasize out of the primary tumor into her body. And rather than getting conventional treatment, she, she certainly was gonna have treatment if it was necessary, but she took a few weeks off and really focused on energy. She began to do qigong, she cleaned up her, her diet, she quit doing all the work she used to do that stressed her out, she got rid of all the people in her life who were stressing her out and, and kept only the, the kind ones and the, the ones of high consciousness. She changed her own energy. She was absolutely ruthless about negative thinking. She just eliminated her negative thinking. She meditated every day. She tapped regularly. She did everything she possibly could to change her energy, energy treatments. And she also did some physical things. She got a laetral course in, in Mexico. She did hyperbaric oxygen in Southern California. So she was doing things like this to shift her body. And so she got the diagnosis in March of 2017. By May, eight weeks later, she went back to the clinic, the hospital, and got retested. And the tumor had shrunk from five centimeters to 1.4 centimeters, and all the lymph nodes under her armpit were clear. Later on, she kept on with a routine. She had a, a blood biopsy that showed there was not a trace of cancer in her body. So again, she was very prepared to go with chemotherapy and radiation if, if that didn't work, but I last saw her a few weeks ago. She's still totally cancer-free, and in fact, her level of vitality is even higher. So these techniques can heal. You change your biochemistry, change your neurology, raise your consciousness, enter a bliss brain, merge with non-local, tap to release your stress, and suddenly your whole body responds. Your levels of those stress chemicals like cortisol go down, your levels of immunoglobulins go up, you're far more resilient physiologically as well as psychologically, and you go out there and create a wonderful life for yourself. That's incredible. If you weren't a doctor, I'd call you a hippie. So <laughs> amazing work. Well, yeah, uh, truly extraordinary stuff. And, um, you know, I, I like the approach where it's saying, hey, you do have both options. You can try one. And, and she's not the only story. I've had guests on here. I've had a, a proper doctor on here that was going to go to chemotherapy and, and went, you know, basically you say the natural route, but th they have the same characteristics. You have to de-stress, uh, really be aware of your diet and what you're eating, right? And stress causes disease. We know that. I think it's the number one factor of disease, isn't it? Is it stress? It's the number one factor responsible for doctor's visits, visits is stress. Yeah, yeah, right. And so you, you eliminate the number one factor immediately. And most people are under perpetual stress. They wake up in stress and continue the whole day. So it's very, very powerful stuff. Uh, I appreciate you and your work. Is there anything that you wish that had asked or you'd like to close with? I would just say, use these things, and you've got a lot of the evidence here. You can look at this brain, and, and all these books are backed by hundreds of studies about each, each one of these books covers, reviews, about 400 scientific studies. So look at the science, be guided by the science. If you're worried about what techniques to use, use evidence-based techniques. 
find out where the evidence leads you. And yeah, you can have, have a great life. So I'd say use, hear the inspiration, look at the evidence, and then apply that. I'd love you to spend the next five minutes after we end here actually writing down a concrete plan for what you will do, what you will personally do in the next 30 days and make an absolute commitment to. If this was a live workshop, if we were talking to an audience of 2,000 people, I'd be asking you to raise your hand if you will commit to that 15 minute a day daily meditation. I have a bunch of free meditations on the app Insight Timer. You'll get a bunch more when you go to blissbrain.com and get a, actually get a free copy of the book at blissbrain at blissbrain.com. Just make shipping and handling. So the publisher is making them available now, special for free at blissbrain.com. So go there, make a commitment to using those meditations. That 50 minutes a day, that's all it requires. But if, if we had an audience here live in front of us, I'd be saying, raise your hand if you will make that commitment. And I've given, I've given this talk to lots of people. Everyone in the audience will raise their hands. So that's my real goal, is to have you apply this in your life, feel the difference, and then cement that to the point where that neural wiring becomes fixed in your brain and you have the trait of resilience, creativity, and joy. Incredible. I love it. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, I invite everybody to go check out the book, Blitz Braden. If you haven't read his other books, check those out too. Uh, support your work and uh, yeah, and and do the practice. You know, that's when you're going to see the result. You know, there's a lot of information out there about why exercise is healthy, but we got to actually, we got to put in the practice. So thank you so much for the research you do. And, and we were talking a little bit at the beginning of how you had to like spend money like a lot of money to to do the scientific studies to prove it to get it in pubmed so you've been investing and researching and and doing the work so thank you so much for what you do it's a joy it's a pleasure and i couldn't be more grateful for the life i have and also the community i i serve thank you for being part of it well dr dawson thank you so much <laughs> thanks guys for watching take care <laughs>